Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. I want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be talking about a consequential period in American history of the 20th century and a very consequential, if short-lived, presidency. The topic today is John F. Kennedy and the Cold War. To discuss that with me is uh, an old friend of Ashbrook, Dr. Stephen Knott. Steve is a professor of Naval Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval War College and the Thomas and Mabel Guy Professor of American History and Government here at Ashland University. He teaches, of course, in uh, Ashbrook's Teaching American History seminars and prominently in our Master of Arts in American History and Government. Prior to his position at the Naval War College, Steve co-chaired the Presidential Oral History Program at the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia. He earned his PhD from Boston College in Political Science and his BA from Assumption College. Um, as I've said many times before, but never fail to remark, he is a New England man, a Yankee through and through. <laughs> um, He's also, of course, an expert in the American presidency. He participated recently in C-SPAN's presidential uh, leadership survey and is the author of a number of really terrific books that I want to commend to our listeners today. Books on the presidency, books on, on our founding, uh, founders like Alexander Hamilton. Steve is really an, an outstanding thinker and scholar on American foreign policy, on the presidency, and on the broader theme of the executive power in the US Constitution and across the scope of American history. And I think that has led him in many ways to consider the presidency of John F. Kennedy in the Cold War. He is, as everyone knows, a frequent guest on our podcast here, The American Idea, a welcome one. And on this score has a new book coming out, in fact, uh, later from the University of Kansas Press on John F. Kennedy, entitled Coming to Terms with John F. Kennedy. Steve Knott, thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. It's always a pleasure to be here. And I may be a New England Yankee, but I am not a New York Yankees fan. I want to make that clear. I'm a diehard Boston Red Sox fan. So I would clarify. <laughs> I would expect nothing less. Thank you. <laughs> um, John F. Kennedy. Uh, and the Cold War. We think of John F. Kennedy, I think, when we think about the 1960s and Kennedy's uh, short-lived presidency, we think of Kennedy as a diehard Cold Warrior uh, in opposition to so the Soviet Union and Soviet communism. Take us back a little bit before Kennedy becomes president. What are the origins of his understanding and view of communism and it, does it connect in any way to his father's public life? Yeah, great question, Jeff. I think, you know, John F. Kennedy was certainly profoundly influenced by his father, learned from his father, particularly when his father was the U.S. ambassador to the court of St. James, in other words, the American ambassador to the United Kingdom, uh, spent, JFK spent a lot of time at his father's side at the embassy. Um, but he did not always share his father's worldviews. Uh, his father, as most of us know, was uh, considered to be, uh, in the parlance of the time, an appeaser. 
somebody who sort of celebrated Chamberlain's appeasement in Munich and somebody who um, didn't seem to be particularly concerned about the menace presented by Nazi Germany and Hitler. Uh, I'm not sure, John F. I shouldn't, let me qualify that. John F. Kennedy differed with that view. Uh, from a very early age, including when he made a trip throughout Europe in the summer of 1939, um, I think Kennedy, John F. Kennedy came to appreciate the threat presented by Nazi totalitarianism, more so than his father did. Now, I don't want to overstate this, uh, but that experience, coupled with Kennedy's own wartime experience in the Second World War, I think gave JFK more of a um, realist perspective on the world and a, a sense that these totalitarian movements, whether it was fascism or communism, pre presented a, a serious threat to the Western world. So he frequently, I think, broke with his father over these issues during the Second World War and in the immediate aftermath during the origins of the Cold War. Talk a little bit about John F. Kennedy's service in World War II and um, how that shaped him as he then goes on to embark on a career in public life. So, of course, he's the skipper of a PT boat in the South Pacific. He's a lieutenant, but he's in charge of this small PT boat and a crew of about 10 to 12 crewmen. Uh, in August 1943, his ship, his boat is sunk by a Japanese destroyer while on patrol uh, in, in the Solomon Islands. And two of his crew members are killed. Uh, Kennedy helps to save one of the crew members who was badly burned. Uh, really, Kennedy is responsible for saving this man's life. In his private letters home, uh, in and around this incident, uh, we see that this young man who for much of his life had lived a privileged life, uh, you might even say sheltered life, uh, really coming face to face with the horrors of war. And he regrets the fact that one of the young soldiers, one of the young uh, sailors who was killed in that PT-109 incident had said to his skipper that he expected to die in the war. And Kennedy regretted the fact that he did not transfer him to some desk job behind the lines. So this was a man deeply influenced by the horrors of war. And I should add, Jeff, he also travels to Berlin immediately after the Nazi surrender. He's part of a press delegation that travels with Navy Secretary James Forstall, and they literally walk through the streets of devastated Berlin within you know, eight weeks of the surrender of Nazi Germany. He's, needless to say, uh, moved by the devastation that he sees, and additionally, when he's considered, this is a time in 1945 when JFK considered a career in journalism, he covers for a brief period of time the opening of the United Nations Conference in San Francisco that will lead to the establishment of a permanent UN. So he develops, I would say, a more realistic foreign policy than his father, but also he's an internationalist in the sense that he believes that the United States needs to be committed uh, to this new world order. And um, he's going to play some type of a role in it. His father is always much more skeptical of these kinds of international endeavors. Mm. 
when does John F. Kennedy, after World War II, launch his public career for in political office? So he launches his first campaign for office in 1946. He runs for a House seat, a congressional seat from Massachusetts. It's a seat that his grandfather held at one point, uh, his mother's father, John F. Fitzgerald. Um, the Kennedy family already has deep roots in the Boston area. So this is a district that comprises parts of Boston and Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, by the way, we should mention, of course, that President Kennedy's older brother, Joseph P. Kennedy Jr., had been killed in the war, in the Second World War, on a very dangerous mission uh, over the English Channel in 1944. So all, that incident as well impacts uh, his worldview, your first question, Jeff. And now John F. Kennedy is the eldest son in the family. There always was some expectation that the boys would go into some type of public service. John F. Kennedy steps into his older brother's shoes, wins this congressional race in 1946, in part based on his own personal charm. And of course, we'd also have to acknowledge in part based on the incredible resources that his father was able to bring to bear during that campaign. So his, his congressional career starts off then in 1947 uh, with his victory. What, um, what, are, what are sort of important markers of young Congressman Kennedy? Young Congressman Kennedy is a supporter of President Truman's uh, Marshall Plan initiatives. Uh, he's a supporter of President Truman's uh, uh, attempt to break the blockade of Berlin uh, that occurs in 1947. Uh, so he's very much a uh, proponent, uh, a supporter of the Truman Doctrine of Contain. Now, interestingly, having said that, uh, it's important to note that this young congressman, who, by the way, is frequently mistaken for a Capitol Hill page because he's so young, um, he is taken by or, or uh, deeply interested in foreign policy issues, much more so than domestic policy. And he immediately takes advantage of his status as a congressman and then later as a U.S. senator, senator to travel the globe on various fact-finding missions, including a couple of missions to French Indochina, which he develops a, a keen interest in. So one of the things I think that sets young Congressman Kennedy apart from perhaps many of his peers is more of a focus on foreign policy, less on domestic policy, which is considered, you know, usually seen as the way to keep your constituents happy. Kennedy, in a sense, didn't have to worry about his constituency. He was bound to win re-election. It freed him up to focus on the issues that he was most interested in, and those were foreign policy issues. You mentioned he becomes a senator. When when does he run for the Senate? And uh, talk a little bit there about the campaign. He runs for Senate in 1952, and he's one of the few bright lights, uh, bright points in the Democratic Party. That yeah, don't year. the Democrats have a bad year in 52? They certainly do. They certainly do. I mean, it's hard to run against a four-star general who's the hero of Operation Overlord, Dwight Eisenhower. So 1952 marks an impressive sweep for the Republican Party, both at the congressional level and at the presidential level. Kennedy is one of the lone standouts. He actually manages to topple one of the princes of the Republican Party, 
Senator Henry Cabot Lodge of the famous Lodge family of Massachusetts. So it's, it's a bit of an upset. Uh, it's a year in which it was usually an uphill battle for most Democrats, but Kennedy is able to defeat Lodge fairly handily, I think 70, 75,000 votes or so. And from that point on, Kennedy's uh, status as something of a national figure is secured because he's taken down this uh, uh, prominent leader of the Republican Party. And what are his positions during the 1950s over the course of the Eisenhower administration? Is he in sync with Ike on foreign policy or does he have differences? He ha he's in sync to an extent, Jeff, but I would say there are important differences on foreign policy, particularly Kennedy is going to become increasingly concerned about two issues. One is what he's going to see as America's lagging position in the late 1950s regarding the space race with the Soviet Union. And the second issue that has foreign and defense implications is Kennedy believes that Eisenhower is putting too much emphasis on nuclear weapons, not enough emphasis on America's conventional military strength, and that that is handcuffing the ability of the United States to respond to smaller so-called brush fires around the world when you're sort of locked into a nuclear or massive retaliation response. I should also add, Jeff, that his, his time as a United States Senator, um, he is frequently absent. And he's frequently absent because this is a man who is going to be given the last rites of the Catholic Church at least four times during the 1950s. This is a very sick individual who has gone from Congress quite a bit and is not seen as an influential member of the United States Senate as a result. Mm. So he has this illness. Um, over the course of the 1950s, obviously it sounds extremely serious and might surprise some of our listeners to know how ill in fact he was. Yet as the 50s come to a close, he feels well enough and certainly thinks he has enough support within the Democratic Party to run for the presidency in 19. 60. Yeah. Yeah. He, he has Addison's disease, which at this point in the mid 20th century tends to be fatal. Uh, there's really no cure. They can ameliorate it through the use of steroids and other drugs. Uh, but yeah, this is not a healthy individual. Now he's able to project a healthy image on the campaign trail, but this is actually a very sick person. Um, and, you know, I don't want to make too much of this, but the fact that he is able to sustain a grueling presidential campaign is a testament to some type of intestinal fortitude that this man has. Um, but uh, I should mention, Jeff, he comes very close to securing the vice presidential nomination of the Democratic Party in 1956. He would have been on a ticket with Adlai Stevenson that will go on to be trounced by President Eisenhower. But that shows you even by 1956, he's already emerged as a national figure, despite the fact that he's frequently an absentee senator. What's the big issue of the campaign of 1960 between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon? For John F. Kennedy, it was this sense that the United States had fallen behind the Soviet Union. And Kennedy, one of his slogans is, he is going to get this country moving again. That we're, we've, we've gone to sleep 
in the 1950s, and we've allowed the Soviet Union to move ahead of us in the space race, to move ahead of us in rocket technology for military and peaceful purposes. Uh, and he points to the fact that the communists led by the Soviet Union, it was all seen as a monolithic movement directed from the Kremlin. He points to the fact that Fidel Castro has taken over in Cuba on New Year's Day, 1959, 90 miles off the coast of Key West as a symbol of the fact that the Eisenhower years were a period of lethargy, were a period of when they were on the move and we were not. And he's going to rectify that. Uh, he's somewhat vague about how he's going to do that, but we're going to compete with the Soviet Union and we're going to defeat them. The campaign of 1960, the election of 1960, he defeats Nixon. He takes over in his inaugural address and in his, in his early speeches. What does Kennedy envision for his administration? He envisions the, uh, his administration as one that, as I said, is going to get this country moving again, and it's going to restore, in a sense, American greatness. Uh, that the United States will bear any burden, will pay any price in order to achieve the success and survival of liberty at home and around the globe. That's almost a direct quote. It's a very soaring inaugural address, one that he was quite proud of, although he was quoted once as saying he still thought Thomas Jefferson's address, inaugural address, was much better than his. <laughs> well, <Probably>. fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Um, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a boundless commitment. Uh, Kennedy believed in American exceptionalism. Kennedy and many of the folks around him believed that if the United States put, it, put its mind to something, to a particular goal, we could achieve it. Whether it's landing a man on the moon or defeating communism in the swamps of Southeast Asia, we could do it. We've proven over and over again throughout our history, we were capable of great things. And the 1960s, according to Kennedy, was going to be a period of American greatness, and he was going to facilitate and lead that greatness. Very early in his presidency, though, he's challenged. Nikita Khrushchev is leader of the Soviet Union. Um, his relations with Khrushchev, famously um, appointed on television, for example, <laughs> uh, Khrushchev saying things like, to the, to the West, we will bury you. Um, what about his relations with Khrushchev? With a, what about the Vienna summit? And how did that relationship perhaps change over the course of Kennedy's presidency? It did change over time. It started off very rocky. Uh, a couple of weeks prior to Kennedy's inauguration, Khrushchev gave a very famous speech in which he committed the Soviet Union to wars of national liberation. And that was seen fairly or not, correctly or not, by the Kennedy administration as a challenge. And so Kennedy comes into office, the rhetoric between Khrushchev and Kennedy at this point is, is hot. And of course, what we have circulating or going on in the background is that Kennedy is slowly giving the green light to what will become known as the Bay of Pigs invasion, where a trained force of Cuban exiles, about 14 or 1500 men, are going to be sent into Cuba in, on April 17, uh, 1961, I think I got that date right, uh, to try to topple the Castro government to instigate an uprising amongst the Cuban people. Of course, it's a disastrous failure. And then two months later in Vienna, 
Kennedy meets with Khrushchev in June of 61, and Khrushchev spends the entire time trying to bully Kennedy to convince Kennedy that he needs to withdraw Western forces from Berlin. So those first few months are periods of heightened rhetoric, of a kind of escalation on both men's part. And uh, it's, a, it's an extremely tense time, so tense that Kennedy actually believes there's a good chance that a war will break out between the United States and the Soviet Union over Berlin sometime in late 1961. Wow. That does sound very heated, the Cold War almost becoming hot at that moment. Um, but what, what's striking, of course, is a lot of folks, when they think of John F. Kennedy and his relations with Khrushchev, they think of the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is a moment, it's been, it's been a talk, written about widely, of course, the movie about it, um, on Kennedy's leadership during that moment, that time. Our listeners, some of them know a lot about the Cuban Missile Crisis, some of them just have heard the phrase. The, what was the Cuban Missile Crisis and how important is it in the presidency of Kennedy? It's a, it's a critical moment in the history of John F. Kennedy. I would say it's perhaps the most critical moment in the history of the Cold War. Uh, it's become a bit of a cliche, but I would say it's the closest that the United States and the Soviet Union came uh, to World War III and perhaps some type of nuclear exchange. After the failure at the Bay of Pigs, Kennedy continued his efforts to try to topple the Castro government. Khrushchev was well aware of these efforts. They were all done covertly, but the Russians knew. Castro obviously knew. Um, and uh, I think Khrushchev was eager to sort of provide Castro with weapons, in this case, intermediate range nuclear weapons, that would sort of force the United States to back off any further efforts to topple the Castro regime. But perhaps equally important, Khrushchev was frustrated over the stalemate in Berlin. He's determined to remove the American and British and French forces from West Berlin, which by the way is located deep inside communist East Germany. So it's kind of a thorn in the Soviet's throat. Um, so Khrushchev took a gamble, a big one, one hell of a gamble, as some folks have called it. There's a book out that, uh, uh, dealing with the crisis called with that title. Um, it backfired ultimately on Khrushchev, uh, but Kennedy and I think both Khrushchev backed away from the missile crisis thinking we cannot keep going down this path. We came too damn close. This thing could have easily spiraled out of control and we would have had some type of nuclear exchange that would have been a disaster for life on Earth. What were the options confronting Kennedy once we had evidence of Soviet missiles in Cuba, how did the Kennedy administration think about dealing with the crisis? The overwhelming consensus initially, Jeff, was that there would have to be some type of American military action directed against these missile sites. Most of Kennedy's advisors favored a sustained series of airstrikes, followed by an invasion, most likely led an amphibious assault by the Marine Corps, uh, that would have produced massive casualties on both sides, but would have eliminated, so the thinking went, uh, this, this, uh, these missiles in Cuba. Interestingly enough, President Kennedy had 13 days. You, you alluded earlier to the movies that have been made about this. One of them is called 13 Days, based on Robert Kennedy's account of the crisis. Kennedy had 13 days where the, the United States um, and the entire world 
the people of the entire world were not aware of what was brewing. That gave the president time to seek alternative options. And he almost from the start resisted the idea of some type of military, direct military action, much to the despair of many of his advisors. He was constantly looking for an alternative. And ultimately what he settled on was what he called a quarantine or a blockade of Cuba uh, to prevent any further Soviet shipments of missiles or technology or manpower uh, to Cuba. And he felt this would give Khrushchev some time to back down and perhaps somehow save face. And of course, that's ultimately what President Kennedy settled on, the blockade of Cuba, the, the, the Khrushchev government, the Kremlin backed down. But what most Americans did not know for years later is part of the reason Khrushchev backed down was because we also backed down. The president made a pledge not to invade Cuba. The president made a pledge to dismantle some American nuclear weapons on the Soviet border with Turkey um, and concessions of that sort. So that was kept quiet, but it helped to uh, avoid a nuclear conflagration. How was Kennedy's after the Bay of Pigs um, fiasco and but now the Cuban Missile Crisis and it looks like the successful resolution of it, as you say, and what people see is at least uh, a tough, determined stance against Soviet presence in Cuba that seems to succeed based on that stance. They don't know the intricacies that you're pointing out here, but it seems like that. How does the public react to Kennedy's um, foreign policy and his engagement in the Cold War? After the Bay of Pigs, his, his poll numbers, much to his surprise, rose. They <laughs> rose. They, they rose. Sorry, that's surprising. No, it's, it's, it's remarkable. He himself was, he said to one of his aides, it's just like Dwight Eisenhower, the worse I do, the more popular I get. Um, <laughs> he, they rose because he took responsibility for it. Uh, he flat out walked out, said, this is on me. Now, behind the scenes, he may not have taken as much responsibility. He fired CIA director, Alan, or he let Alan Dulles, the CIA director, resign a few months later, and a couple of folks within the CIA were dismissed. So, but publicly, he took responsibility for the Bay of Pigs. The American public rallied to him. You've got to keep in mind, this is a time when the American people are united in a sense, in part out of just a fear of the Soviet Union and of communism. And there's a tendency to want to rally to the commander in chief, okay? After the missile crisis, which is October of 62, so well over a year and a half later, his poll numbers also go up again, in part, as you, you put your finger right on it, Jeff, the perception was Khrushchev had backed down, Kennedy had held firm. Um, and so even some of Kennedy's more conservative critics at the time were impressed with what they viewed as a kind of firm response to Soviet aggression. Hi, I'm Rich Police, Associate Director of Student Programs at the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Scholar Program is an honors program located at Ashland University for undergraduate students with an interest in politics, history, and economics. Modeled after a classical liberal education, you will read the great texts, not textbooks. Your classes will be conversations, not lectures. 
conversations with other students, with your professors, and with great thinkers and statesmen from throughout human history. If you or a young person you know are passionate about life's important questions, if you want an education that emphasizes discovery, if you value liberal education and the principles of freedom it upholds, then this is the place for you. To learn more, visit us online at ashbrookscholar.org. One of the points that you're making and was very interesting to me to hear is, while, we're, while the American mind, of course, is focused uh, on Cuba, there is this ongoing crisis in Berlin, and in particularly in West Berlin, the Berlin crisis and the building of the Berlin Wall and Kennedy's very famous speech in Berlin. When does that take place and how important is that for Kennedy in the Cold War? Uh, Extremely important. So Berlin is the issue of 1961, of Kennedy's first year in office. It's the issue at the Vienna summit in June of 61. This is where Khrushchev tries to bully Kennedy into conceding any Western presence in West Berlin. Kennedy refuses, and they actually leave that summit saying some stuff to each other like, well, you know, this, this, this could be a precursor to war. Now, the thing that actually brings the temperature down in Berlin is that horrible atrocity known as the Berlin Wall, which Khrushchev and the East Germans erect in August of 1961. They are so embarrassed that they're losing so many talented people, and actually not just talent, people of all kinds, just fleeing into the Western sector, that overnight, more or less, over a series of a few nights, they erect this monstrosity known as the Berlin Wall that cuts the East Berliners off from West Berlin. Now, look, Kennedy was appalled by it. Western public opinion was appalled by it. But quietly behind the scenes, Kennedy believed that that lowered the temperature in Berlin and made a conflict less likely. There was a few sort of almost photo opportunity um, clashes between American and Soviet tanks right almost nose to nose at Checkpoint Charlie in Berlin. But in the end, both Kennedy and Khrushchev backed down and Berlin ceases to be an issue as we get into 1962 and Cuba replaces it. And that's where Khrushchev, of course, makes his hell of a gamble. Yeah. Um, We do though remember, and a lot of our listeners will remember or will have seen footage of Kennedy's uh, Ich bin ein Berliner speech. Well, how important is that speech to the Kennedy administration and sort of to the to the Kennedy appeal in the Cold War? Yeah, I think it's very important, Jeff. And thanks for him. I should have addressed that in your previous question. Um, Kennedy travels to Berlin in June of 63. So, you know, well after the, 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 the confrontation in August and September of 61. And he is deeply moved by he's laying eyes on the Berlin Wall for the first time. And he's, he's appalled, like any visitor, any, anyone from the West would have been, to see this monstrosity separating families and just a testament to the, um, to say the least, the downsides of totalitarianism. Um, and he actually uh, gives more of an impassioned speech, that famous Ich bin ein Berliner speech, uh, than I think a lot of his uh, aides and I think even Secretary of State Dean Rusk thought he'd gone 
a little bit over the top because he's so put off by this um, symbol of, 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 of an offense to human rights and to human dignity. And he delivers that famous line, Ich bin ein Berliner, all free men, no matter where they live, are citizens of Berlin. And therefore, you know, there's no greater, uh, losing the train that he, uh, there's the greatest statement that any free man can make in our time is that I am a citizen of Berlin, ich bin ein Berliner. Now, by the way, there is an urban myth out there that I wish would go away, that that line means I am a jelly donut. That is complete fiction. It first appears in a work of fiction. And thanks to the good old internet, which is good at circulating misinformation, it's become accepted as fact. It's not fact, it's fiction. Our listeners will be glad to know. <laughs> um, but 400,000 Germans were hardly going to be cheering, I am a jelly donut. Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> but this, you know, the other thing I think about in the Cold War, when we think about tensions with Cuba, we think about the crisis over West Berlin. But you also mentioned in, in the 1950s when he's a senator, we have, of course, Sputnik. And we have the Soviet launch of a satellite into space and Kennedy uh, castigating the Eisenhower administration for its laxity in dealing with the Soviet Union and us seeming to fall behind the Soviets in this. The space race. And of course, the famous put a man on the moon speech that Kennedy gives. This boundless faith in American ability to accomplish great tasks, great deeds. Talk about Kennedy's view of the space race, especially in light of his desire to prove American superiority over Soviet communism. Yeah, I think it's important for your listeners, Jeff, to realize John F. Kennedy was an incredibly competitive person. Uh, all, all the Kennedys, I think, were quite competitive. You know, I mean, if you played touch football at Hyannisport, you were lucky to get out of there without a broken arm. Um, and that's touch football. Right. Uh, he did see what he thought was Soviet superiority in space with Sputnik uh, with being the first to put a man in orbit, uh, Yuri Gagarin, uh, et cetera. He saw those as symbols of American slipping. Um, and then he tended to extend that view of the United States slipping behind the Soviet Union to nuclear superiority as well. He was way off the mark there. Uh, the fact is that America's intercontinental ballistic missile forces and its B-52s and all, all of the weaponry that we had was, we far outnumbered what the Soviets had at the time, but there was a lot of speculation that they had exceeded us. And he seems to have bought into that for a time. But there's another, I think, more interesting aspect, particularly when he becomes president. Kennedy is really worried that Americans who are living such comfortable lives, certainly in comparison to folks behind the Iron Curtain. And certainly, you know, he recognized that not all Americans were living comfortable lives. We can get to that perhaps. But um, certainly white America was, gay, was, was, was experiencing a period of remarkable prosperity. He was worried that Americans were getting soft, literally soft. Thus, you know, these 50 mile Pikes and the President's Council on Physical All Fitness. Right, of course. And he believed that he needed to get, that the American public needed to get behind some cause larger than this themselves. 
You know, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. He was going to give them a space race. He was going to give them a challenge to be the first nation to land human beings on the moon. You know, to, to you know, a remarkable goal, considering that the Wright brothers were only like 60 years in the rearview mirror. Um, and a goal that when he made it, uh, very few people, a lot of people at times said, there's no way we can do this. Certainly not do it by the end of the decade, which is the goal Kennedy set. So this commitment to landing a man on the moon is part of this larger goal of getting America moving again, getting the American people literally moving again, not just sitting in front of the television sets, and it's striving for something bigger than themselves. And, uh, you know, I actually, I think he was onto something. I should add, Jeff, Eisenhower thought the whole man mission to the moon was just an incredible waste of money. Really? And yes. I would, I'm going to assume, though, that in some ways, certainly the way it's been portrayed in the right stuff and other books and movies, that it seemed to capture part of the public imagination. And yes. Kennedy had some intuitive sense that that was there to be captured and did capture it. Great way to put it. And frequently what would happen when Alan Shepard or John Glenn or Gus Grissom, all those guys from the right stuff would return from one of their missions. One of the first places they would end up is in the Rose Garden with President Kennedy uh, for a highly publicized event, which he would pin a medal on them. But yeah, I mean, he, he, um, there, there, there really is something about John F. Kennedy that uh, this is a guy that had something, despite a kind of uh, streak of cynicism, uh, this is a guy that also had a romantic streak in him as well. He was a fairly complex individual and he understood a kind of American desire for exploration, for sort of pushing the frontiers, a new frontier, if you will. Um, and uh, he, 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 he caught that and he, and he knew, he had a feeling that the public would rise to the occasion. And of course they did. I remember as a school child being piled into an auditorium to watch a spacewalk or to watch a Gemini launch or whatever. All of us just sitting there on the, watching these grainy black and white TVs showing us the latest American achievement in space. Yeah. Um, a lot of our listeners probably can remember that as well and, and have remember that sort of sense of it. Um, the other thing, though, in the Cold War that we often think about, besides uh, Cuba, West Berlin and the space race, of course, is Vietnam and the, the war in Vietnam, the bitter conflicts within the United States over Vietnam. It doesn't the, the war itself, as I understand, it doesn't really start in the Kennedy administration. But what is Kennedy's, uh, you mentioned already his deep interest in Indochina, French Indochina, which of course mm -hmm. is Vietnam and the Vietnam area. What is um, Kennedy's uh, understanding of the fighting in Vietnam and its connection to the Cold War? And what's the Kennedy administration's approach to Vietnam? Great questions, Jeff. Uh, look, John F. Kennedy is one of the few uh, members of Congress in the 1950s, uh, late 40s and 50s, who makes a point of engaging in a lot of foreign travel, as I mentioned, and particularly going to Vietnam. And when he goes to Vietnam, he doesn't just meet with the US ambassador for cocktails. He really kind of tries to reach down into the lower levels of the State Department uh, embassy in, in, in Vietnam, of the American embassy in Vietnam, 
and lower level American military figures. This is a guy who um, all his public service is marked by this desire not to get the official line, not to be held a captive by the bureaucracy. And it particularly shows when it comes to Vietnam. So as a result of what he's hearing in the 1950s from Americans and French uh, diplomats and military figures, he's beginning to understand that for a lot of Vietnamese, it's not for them a question of communism versus the free world. It's a question of colonialism. It's a question of an independent Vietnam versus a French colony. And uh, when the French are finally defeated at Dien Bien Phu, and there's pressure on the United States to sort of fill the void and make sure that the communist movement there doesn't come to power. Kennedy has doubts at this time when a lot of his fellow uh, political figures uh, are thinking perhaps, you know, we need to fill that void as part of our, part of our policy of containment. Now, look, when he, when he becomes president, when he runs for president, he is convinced that the only way a Democrat can win the White House is to outflank the Republicans on national security issues. So he takes, as I said earlier, a very hard line on the Soviets, on the Cubans. Vietnam's not really an issue. I believe it only comes up once in the four Kennedy-Nixon debates of 60. Uh, but overall, Kennedy's rhetoric is hard line. And in a way, he almost outflanks Nixon as a hardliner on communism. And Nixon is a very well-known anti-communist. <laughs> yes, very well-known, very well-known. Now, when Kennedy becomes president, now he's got to sort of govern and he's made these, you know, we're not gonna be, we're, we're not gonna slip behind the Soviets anymore. There's not gonna be a repeat of what happened in Cuba. Um, you know, we're gonna be much more assertive, including perhaps in places like the former French Indochina, now referred to as Vietnam. To characterize President Kennedy's decision-making from January 20th, 61 to November 27th, 22nd, 63, it was constant skepticism. His military advisors were telling him, usually, we need more advisors. We need to up the amount of uh, aid we're giving to the South Vietnamese military. Uh, more, more, more. What he tended to do during that period of time was split the difference. But if you look at the internal debates that occurred, one of the more skeptical voices throughout debates over Vietnam is President Kennedy's. I am convinced, and I recognize this as conjecture, and by the way, I never used to believe this. I always believed Kennedy would have followed the same path as Lyndon Johnson. I no longer believe that. I do believe that John F. Kennedy would not have escalated American involvement in Vietnam to the extent that his successor did. Uh, really, that's fascinating because I was wondering myself, in all of these um, foreign policy decisions and uh, his, uh, whether it's Cuba or whether it's West Berlin or whether it's Vietnam, I'm wondering in, in the back of my mind, Lyndon Johnson is Kennedy. Are Kennedy and Johnson on uh, of one mind on this? Are they on the same track, or are there significant differences of opinion between them within the Kennedy administration? So Lyndon Johnson is not a key player in the Kennedy administration, even though he is vice president. Uh, and President Kennedy tries to keep Johnson's massive ego um, satisfied. That's not but easy to do. <laughs> that is not easy to do. 
Uh, the thing is, Jeff, Lyndon Johnson's main interests were domestic policy. As I said earlier, John F. Kennedy's was foreign policy. I am firmly convinced, as I said, that Kennedy would not have followed the same path because he was a skeptic about the ability of the South Vietnamese government, first under Diem and later under the generals who overthrew him with, by the way, US assistance. Um, I just don't see it happening. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence to show that Kennedy believed he needed to get past the 1964 presidential election where communism and even Vietnam to an extent was gonna be an issue. Once he got past that, assuming he won re-election, I believe you would have seen a shift in policy and it would have been a very different policy than the one pursued by President Lyndon Johnson. Mm -hmm. Kennedy was far more confident in his foreign policy skills than President Johnson was, who felt very uh, sort of in over his head when it came to foreign policy. Ah, very. That's fascinating. Uh, and, you know, we, as you, you mentioned, November 22nd, 1963, of course, the date of Kennedy's uh, terrible and tragic assassination. Um, we don't often think about this, but it's something that I know you're, you're thinking about and even writing about. It, the context of the assassination in international affairs, of course, is the Cold War. And I'm just wondering, and our listeners might be very interested to know your thoughts on whether the Cold War influenced or even distorted the investigation of Kennedy's assassination, famously known as the Warren Commission. There's, there's no question that Cold War pressures influenced the Warren Commission report. And by that, I mean, President Lyndon Johnson was terrified that links would be drawn between Lee Harvey Oswald. And by the way, there were links. The man had lived in the Soviet Union. He had defected to the Soviet Union in the late 50s and married a Russian wife and then returned to the United States with, with his wife. Um, Johnson was deeply concerned that the emotional reaction to President Kennedy's death, and by the way, I can kind of remember that. I remember my mother crying in front of the television set, uh, would spiral out of control if it was proved that there were any links between Oswald and the KGB, or perhaps the Cubans and Fidel Castro. And so the word kind of went out, stay away, not so much from the fact that Oswald was a Marxist, and it was, it did become known that he traveled to the Soviet Union, but for God's sakes, issue some report that's gonna put the blame on Lee Harvey Oswald acting individually. Now, I happen to believe, and this is not gonna go down well with some listeners, I believe the Warren Commission got it right. I think Oswald did act alone. The evidence against him, well, somewhat circumstantial, but not entirely, is overwhelming. But the fact is that the Warren Commission was told to stay away from the secret efforts that had been underway to assassinate Fidel Castro, called Operation Mongoose, and other uh, guerrilla activities that had been directed by Attorney General Robert Kennedy. That was off limits. When we all found out about that kind of stuff 10, 15, 20 years later, lo and behold, it fed this burgeoning Kennedy conspiracy industry that there must have been something more to it, whether it was Cuban or Soviet or even CIA involvement, which is the Oliver Stone perspective, 
Uh, there had to be something more to it. And the fact that the Warren Commission stayed away from some of these issues just fed this conspiracy complex. Mm. Looking at Kennedy's um, leadership of America in the Cold War, what's, I know maybe this is an unfair question, but what's your judgment on Kennedy's leadership in this really um, tense and difficult time in American foreign policy? Um, I think there's two Kennedy presidencies, pre-missile crisis, post-missile crisis. I would give him, you know, mediocre grades prior to the missile crisis. I think he, with a lot of help from Khrushchev, uh, fed the, the, the tensions, exploited to some extent the tensions. But I think after the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, both Kennedy and Khrushchev were looking for a way out of the Cold War. And one of Kennedy's most fascinating speeches, and I would strongly recommend it to your listeners, a great primary source for any high school teachers out there, is Kennedy's commencement address at American University in June, I think June 11th, 1963, a remarkable speech in which he's extending an olive branch to Khrushchev, to the Soviet Union. He praises the role of the Soviet Union in defeating uh, Hitler. Uh, Khrushchev was so impressed by the speech that he actually allowed it to be broadcast on the state-controlled television in Russia. I think, unfortunately, there was a real chance for some genuine detente between Khrushchev and Kennedy. They managed to put together a limited nuclear test ban treaty in September of 63. More would have followed, but Dallas ended all that. Yeah, fascinating because you, you almost seem to be suggesting that um, while our perception of John F. Kennedy uh, is a, as a real hardliner against Soviet communism, that there were moments, and you mentioned some of those already in de-escalating the Cuban Missile Crisis with a speech like this, where it almost sounds like you're saying he sort of I don't want to say went out of his way, but made deliberate efforts to avoid or de-escalate conflict with the USSR. That's a surprising yeah. understanding of Kennedy. Yes, he did, Jeff. Uh, no question. And again, for political reasons, a lot of this was kept. Obviously, the, the American University speech was public, uh, but a lot of the sort of peace feelers uh, was kept under wraps because Kennedy was already under attack for being a pacifist, not a pacifist, but for being soft on communism. And he did not want that to be a major issue in 64. So much of what I've said to you today is kind of being held in abeyance until after the 64 election, or it's being conveyed quietly to the Soviet Union. There's no doubt in my mind that Khrushchev and Kennedy were moving towards a detente. Dallas ends that, and Khrushchev himself is deposed in the fall of 64 and the whole history of the Cold War takes a very different turn. John F. Kennedy, um, for better or for worse, I think sometimes this might've gotten into, him into trouble, but more often than not, I would say for the better, he was very much an independent thinker. Um, he, he uh, as I said earlier, he did not accept bureaucratic pablum. He hated getting templates from the State Department. Uh, he, he, he had a very inquiring mind, and I think uh, much more so than a number of his uh, successors. And I do think we might have missed a unique opportunity in the early to mid-60s to sort of lower the Cold War tensions. Um, he clearly was an inspiration for a lot of folks who succeeded him. Um, and I, I'm thinking now of, of the Berlin crisis 
his famous speech at Berlin. And of course, uh, a later president, Ronald Reagan, gives a very famous speech at Berlin. Uh, and in many ways, you can those speeches, there's some resonance with them and the importance of West Berlin and the cause of freedom and America as an exceptional country that can really achieve great things. Uh, is, is it too far to suggest that John F. Kennedy, a Democrat, had some effect on a Republican like Ronald Reagan? Well, I don't think it's too far at all, Jeff. And in fact, I try to make this point in my book that's coming out later this year. Uh, and it's probably going to piss off people, pardon the expression, on both the left and the right. But I do think there are comparisons to be made between Reagan and Kennedy. I think Kennedy had a, you know, a greater intellect, probably a higher IQ, was more perhaps of an independent thinker. But uh, the two men shared a love of, of, of American history. Uh, I think the two men had, in, to some extent, a kind of romanticized view, perhaps, of American history. They loved the idea of heroes and heroism. They both spoke frequently about that. And by the way, one of the more underrated speeches of Ronald Reagan's presidency was delivered in June of 1985 at a fundraiser for the John F. Kennedy Library, uh, an incredible speech in which President Reagan extols John F. Kennedy's American exceptionalism, extols Kennedy's love of history and praises Kennedy as a patriot who believed in American exceptionalism. I strongly recommend it to your audience that they take a look at this June 85 Reagan tribute to JFK and also that they put aside, make a little note to buy my book this uh, later this year where they'll see these comparisons fleshed out even more. Sorry for the plug. <laughs> That's all right. Your, your book is called, I, I think it's worth noting that your book is in fact called Coming to Terms with John F. Kennedy. Um, why is it called that? That's an odd title, if you don't mind my saying so. Yeah. Well, Jeff, I've been living, I live in Massachusetts. I live about 12 miles from the Kennedy Library. That was the place I was first employed out of college. I grew up in a Kennedy worshiping family, uh, for, as far as particularly from my mother, the Kennedys, particularly John F. Kennedy, could do no wrong. Uh, he was our first Catholic president. She was Catholic. He was Irish. She was Irish. He could do no wrong. And so that's the environment I was raised in. My first memory is of a kind of fear surrounding the Cuban Missile Crisis. I was five years old. My parents were watching the president's televised address. I didn't know what he was saying, but I could tell by the looks on their faces, my parents' faces, that they were concerned. And then my brother came home the next day and said all the kids at school had been talking about how there was going to be a war. That's my first memory. My second memory is my mother watching the TV and crying uh, during President Kennedy's funeral. So memories, employment, I've been living, I feel like I've been living with the Kennedys, particularly John F. Kennedy's legacy all my life. I figured at this stage of my life, it was time to come clean and write about it. <laughs> give us, as our, in our concluding moment here, give us your assessment of John S. Kennedy's leadership during the Cold War, and particularly in writing this book, did it in any way change your view of Kennedy? Jeff, if I could add one other personal thing, my mother used to always say to me when I'd write books on Ronald Reagan, when are you ever gonna write a book about a good president like Kennedy? So, <laughs> part, part, of the reason, part of the reason I undertook this project was to satisfy my late mother's request. Uh, with that said, um, 
Yeah, I, I was surprised to the extent that Kennedy was much, and I've said this repeatedly, Kennedy was much more conciliatory, much more uh, willing to put himself in Khrushchev's shoes. I know for some conservatives, that's probably not necessarily a positive statement to make. Uh, but I do think it helped us avert World War III. Uh, I do think perhaps none of us maybe would be here today otherwise. I know that sounds a little bit over the top, but I don't think so. Um, he truly was unique for a president in that he was willing even to question some cherished ideas of his own, whether it was foreign policy or domestic policy. Um, and he um, just had this kind of innate curiosity that I think might have helped us get out of the Cold War. And by the way, I should add, I'm not talking about a detente where the Soviet Union is allowed to go its merry way. I think Kennedy ultimately believed, as Ronald Reagan did, that the United States and the free world would triumph. So let me get that out there. But in terms of trying to avoid conflict, trying to avoid deaths of both civilians and combatants, uh, Kennedy, that was the top priority for President Kennedy. And that was something of a surprise for me when I looked at Kennedy in the Cold War. Oh, that's fascinating. And a, <clears throat> a fascinating look at a complex and fascinating president. Steve Knott, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. Subscribe for more at ashbrook.org slash AmericanIdeaPod and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at AMIdeaPodcast. From the Schramm Library in Ashland, Ohio, I'm Jeff Sickett.